This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. My name is Jake Seward, and I run corporate communications here at Goldman Sachs. The interconnectedness of global markets has been a hot topic in the political realm over the last several months. My guest today, Andrew Tilton, is the chief Asia economist for Goldman Sachs Research, and he's here today to discuss the economic relationships between Asian economies, big and small, and also across the Pacific and around the world. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you. So it's hard not to start off with your take on the rising tensions between the United States and Asia. One of President Trump's first actions after assuming office was to end U.S. involvement in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. Investors at our recent macro conference in Hong Kong cited the risk of damaging trade wars as their number one concern for 2017, and the president's already had a couple interesting phone calls with leaders in the region. What are the key risks or opportunities for Asia from this new climate? Well, I think a lot of the historic success of East Asian economic development has been built on manufacturing exports, growing the manufacturing base, exporting more to the U.S. and other developed markets. That's been predicated on a relatively free and open trading environment. If that comes into question because of some of the new actions of the administration, that would be a significant risk to the development strategy, not only of China, but of other nations in the region. Most commentators expect that any increase that the U.S. puts on taxes or tariffs on Chinese goods would be reciprocated. It would be hard to imagine China not responding. Who might be the winners and losers in that kind of a scenario? I think in both economies, you'll see domestic industries that face foreign competition benefiting. They'll have higher domestic profit margins if they don't have to face as much import competition. But in general, there'll be more losers than winners. And I think some of the biggest losers will be in the small open economies of the region. I'm thinking of places like Korea and Taiwan, where the trade share of GDP is quite large and where many firms produce components that are exported to places like China for assembly and for ultimate destinations in the developed markets. So even if trade barriers aren't targeted at these economies, trade barriers target for example, at China, could indirectly affect these economies. And because of their very high dependence on trade, they would suffer even if they're not the focus of trade barriers. And would Chinese producers presumably just pass through price increases to U.S. consumers? Most likely. You have relatively low profit margins for Chinese industry at the moment. Therefore, the degree to which they can take lower margins and avoid a big price increase for U.S. consumers is pretty limited. There is, of course, the possibility that the Chinese renminbi depreciates further and Chinese producers thereby regain some of their competitiveness from higher U.S. import tariffs via a weaker currency against the dollar. So the ASEAN countries, including the Philippines and Indonesia, depend a great deal on both China and the U.S. for growth. Where would they end up if the U.S. and China reduced their cooperation with each other and we saw rising trade tension? The smaller economies... Thailand being a notable example, Malaysia as well, Singapore would be hurt in a similar manner to Korea and Taiwan, as I mentioned earlier. The larger economies, particularly Indonesia, but also Philippines, have more of a domestic demand story. They have young, rapidly growing populations and a bit more prospect for you know, developing their domestic economy and a bit less reliance as a share of GDP on foreign demand. So I think they're better positioned, but they won't escape some fallout from a significant trade conflict between the U.S. and China. There's been a lot of talk over the years about China's debt problem or debt situation. 
some of the cycles and how analysts have viewed it and the capital outflows and the risks associated with that have gone back and forth. Most recently, these concerns appear to have receded. Where do you stand on China's 2017 outlook, and can they continue to meet their growth targets? Maintaining a reasonable level of growth and high level of stability is a really high priority for the Chinese administration this year, ahead of the once every five years leadership reshuffle late in the year. So policymakers have prioritized stability. They've hinted that they might accept a bit less growth if they can avoid a risk of much less growth or of a lot of financial volatility. So the willingness to continue fiscal stimulus, reasonably easy credit growth is apt to be fairly high. Policymakers are tightening in targeted ways to address what they see as the biggest risk for the year ahead. One is capital outflows which have been a significant problem. You've seen a tightening up in administrative controls on capital flows. Two is shadow banking. So you see some actions by PPOC, banking regulators, attempting to address some of the risks there. And third main area of focus has been housing, where we had a big run-up in housing prices in the so-called tier one and two cities, the bigger cities last year, which prompted policymakers to institute some demand controls in those cities and try to discourage banks from lending too aggressively on the mortgage front. And have those efforts been more or less effective to date? I would say the efforts over the past 18 to 24 months to stimulate the economy have been pretty effective. So growth is back on an official GDP basis, back in line with the target 6.7% was growth last year. The target was 65 to 7 The efforts to tighten, I think, are it's too early to tell how effective they'll be. It does seem like there's been some slowing in the housing area. And again, we don't have the data yet, but it appears as if some of the efforts to control capital outflow, particularly some of the newer measures instituted late in 2016, have had at least some impact. So President Trump during the campaign made the cheapness of China's currency a regular part of his stump speech. But what's been notable about China's stance over the last couple of years were its efforts to prop up the renminbi as part of a broader strategy, reducing some of the capital outflows, as you discussed, and joining the IMF's benchmark currency basket. They've since accomplished the latter goal. Do you expect a change in the government's approach to the currency this year? We think they'd prefer to see lower capital outflows. That's priority number one but wouldn't be averse to having a bit more depreciation. So the concern is primarily about destabilizing capital outflows that could cause financial instability in the domestic economy. If you have big deposit flight, that's not something they want to see, and that could potentially affect domestic credit conditions. But we don't think they're averse to having mild, slow depreciation. And that's really what we got on net in 2016. We do believe they're reluctant to see a large one-off depreciation, that is to quote unquote, let the currency go, which is what some investors have expected or even hoped for from a trading perspective. That to the Chinese authorities represents a lot of uncertainty. Uncertainty isn't something they like, again, particularly in this leadership transition year. So we expect them to continue to try to manage the currency via tight controls on capital outflows and the willingness to use some foreign exchange reserves to moderate any depreciation that occurs. You talk about managing the currency, and President Trump has a choice in front of him about naming China a currency manipulator or not under this U.S. law that the president has to address every year. How might the Chinese respond to that? The currency manipulator designation by itself 
doesn't require the U.S. to institute tariffs. It only requires so-called enhanced monitoring of China by the U.S. Treasury. So from that perspective, from a genuine economic impact of such a statement will be pretty low. And so I would expect most likely that China would respond to words with words and probably not a huge amount of retaliatory action. Of course, if the U.S. then later imposes tariffs, that's a different story, and I think China would retaliate. But I think policymakers there are well-versed on the U.S. actions and their potential consequences and probably won't overreact to something that ultimately will be more cosmetic than, than real. So here in the U.S., monetary policy is gradually tightening. A lot of people expect two or three hikes this year. There have been two hikes in the last two years after really none for almost a decade. Your colleagues in Goldman Sachs research expect as many as three this year, which could lead to a stronger dollar. We've already seen some impact of that. What would the impact be of higher U.S. rates in the Asian economies? Asian investors and policymakers really watch the Fed keenly because Fed policy and the dollar have a huge impact on financial conditions in that part of the world through a number of different channels, through the impact on U.S. growth, on commodity prices, on capital flows to and from the region. So Fed policy is really critical. And as you said, we've been through a very benign period, of very easy U.S. monetary policy. We've only had a couple of rate hikes so far, and now we're facing the prospect of a bit of an acceleration in the pace of rate hikes. Typically, those have been periods that have been not so pleasant from an emerging market perspective. In this case, in 2017, we don't anticipate that most Asian central banks will be raising rates. So in the past, we've tended to have a high degree of correlation between the direction of travel and U.S. rates and in Asian central banks' policy moves. But because inflation is still pretty low in much of the region and growth is still underperforming policymakers' targets in a lot of places, we think policy is likely to remain pretty loose. And that's why, on balance, we think the interest rate differential, at least in terms of short-term interest rates between the U.S. and Asia, probably increases. And probably on net, that's helpful for the dollar. So as you discuss that divergence, what would be the implications of a broader story of divergence between the U.S. and Asian markets? In recent years, you've seen increased dollar borrowing by Asian corporates. This is a little bit different than what happened prior to the Asian financial crisis. At that time, you had a lot of financial institutions borrowing short-term in dollars, which created a lot of vulnerability when their exchange rates began to fall. It made it much harder to repay those dollar loans in local currency terms. You have some of that dynamic today, but it's less pernicious in the sense that it tends to be longer-term debt and it tends to be non-financial companies. So there is less knock-on effect to the rest of the economy and the rest of the region. And presumably most of those companies have dollar exposure because they're selling in dollars by and large. In some cases, they don't because they just see dollars as a cheaper funding alternative. But I think in many cases, they do have that so-called natural hedge. So in this case, we don't think it's as harmful and certainly less likely to lead to an acute crisis. Nonetheless, if we do see further dollar appreciation, it does increase the local currency burden of repaying those loans and probably has some negative effect on investment and growth. Let's talk about Japan for a second. Japan's been mired in pretty stagnant growth over several years now. And last year, it began some rather drastic policy efforts to reverse that trend by pursuing negative interest rate strategy. How successful has the BOJ been in this experiment? And do you think this year we'll see a better result from that effort? 
partly successful. It's avoided further deflation. We've seen generally somewhat better inflation performance in the few years since Abenomics began and since the BOJ began a more aggressive monetary easing strategy. We anticipate, though, that inflation will still remain below 1% over the course of 2017, which is still some distance from the 2% inflation target. And now the Bank of Japan has interest rates essentially pegged for the first 10 years of the interest rate curve at close to 0%. So really, monetary policy feels pretty tapped out at this point. And any impetus to the economy is going to have to come through fiscal policy, which in Japan is politically quite difficult, or via the rest of the world. If the rest of the world does much better, then Japan will be able to export more currency, may be able to depreciate further, both of which would impart a stimulus to the economy. So in the absence of a big domestic stimulus program, really Japan has become kind of a play on the global reflation theme. If U.S. can raise rates significantly. If global growth does better, Japan will do meaningfully better. If not, Japan will struggle. Given their demographics, the limits of central bank policy, the debt load the national government's carrying, do they have any room to maneuver, really? Fiscal policy is still a lever where there is an opportunity, perhaps, to try to stimulate even more in the short term. The deficit is large and it's unsustainable. But ultimately, debt sustainability is about the debt ratio to the economy. It's got a numerator and a denominator. Focusing too exclusively on the numerator, cutting the deficit or cutting the debt, might be detrimental to growth, which hurts the denominator. So it's really a balance between those things. If there's a prospect for reflating the economy further in the short run that could help inflation get back to, say, 2% on a sustained basis, that might actually be helpful in the longer term for Japan to get out of its low inflation trap. So that's something that I think policymakers have contemplated. There are also a number of structural reforms that have been discussed, including things that are even more politically sensitive, like immigration or changes to labor laws. But ultimately, things aren't that bad right now. Japan is a pretty nice place. And so the political pressure to do some of those things is still not extreme enough in our view, for those changes to occur. Therefore, really what happens to the rest of the world is going to be a key determinant of the the Japanese outlook over the coming year. Let's turn to India. Prime Minister Modi enacted a demonetization policy in November of last year in an effort to crack down on corruption and illicit activity. But there were some negative consequences, lower amounts of cash in the economy for a time that ended up upsetting the business community and reduced confidence amongst consumers. As cash levels normalize, should we see growth recover there? We should see growth look better over the next few months. But before I get into the details of that, I would just say that I think the demonetization is really one of the most fascinating things that's occurred in the last few years anywhere in the world. It's something that I think economics graduate students will be studying five or 10 years from now. Economists kind of overuse vehicle analogies, but I think the analogy here that's really tempting is you're on your car driving full speed in the freeway and you decide to do an oil change. That's basically what happened. It took almost 90% out of currency out of circulation and tried to reinfuse it. Not normally something you think about, but it's essential to the functioning of the vehicle, or in this case, the economy. And what happened was a severe drop in consumption. 
because people simply didn't have the cash, or in some cases they had cash but only large bills. There weren't enough small bills or change to go around. So we saw a big hit in consumption and economic activity late in 2016. Now the cash levels are getting back to normal. We do think we'll see a reacceleration, particularly on the consumption side. What we don't know yet is what the long-term consequences are going to be. The hope of the government is it will discourage so-called black money and it will encourage the financialization of the economy. It'll encourage people to hold bank accounts and use electronic means of payment rather than cash. It may also increase the tax base. But it's also increased uncertainty a lot. It's caused a meaningful hit to business over the last couple of months. So that may have some lingering effect on investment as well. The last uncertainty is how it will affect popular perception of Prime Minister Modi. He has been a very reform-oriented leader. He's facing some tests in a number of state elections over the coming month. If he does well, then we can probably feel comfortable about the reform path continuing. If there's a setback for his party, that might have negative consequences for the markets. Was the the country prepared psychologically for that change? Because economies, at the end of the day, depend a great deal on consumer confidence and and their readiness to spend. And were they ready to move to a more financialized economy? Ultimately, the infrastructure isn't there for India to be a fully financialized economy in the short term. There have been a lot of important efforts over the past few years in terms of provision of bank accounts to the rural population, a unique identification number that helps provide some of the infrastructure for bank accounts and for financial inclusion. So some very important steps have been taken. Still, by some accounts, 80 to 90 percent of economic activity was taking place in cash. So this is pretty difficult to replace with electronic activity in any short span of time. Political transition is a key theme, not only in the U.S., but also in Europe and throughout Asia. What are you watching this year that will help determine the longer term trajectory of Asian economies? There are some really important changes in senior leadership and in policy. The one that's most in focus, of course, is in China, where President Xi will be leading the process to reshuffle the senior leadership, the standing committee in particular. And there's a lot of speculation about what form that might take and how it might impact the pace and direction of economic reform. In our view, the direction of economic reform has been reasonably clearly set out by the president. We don't have a strong reason to think that would change. The pace of economic reform might accelerate somewhat if he has a leadership group in the standing committee and the Politburo and the ministries that is aligned with his objectives. And there are political changes elsewhere in the region as well. A lot of uncertainty currently in Korea, for example. But the change in China is the one that's probably captured the most attention. And of course, coming back to the U.S., how the Trump administration decides to deal with the political and economic agenda in Asia will be very important as well. Geopolitically, a lot of people expect the U.S. to retreat a little bit from the region. They've already done so by abandoning TPP. Does that give China room to expand their ambitions in the region? Many people are expecting that in a political sense, but in an economic sense, can we see more of what we've already seen on the Asia Infrastructure Bank and the like? Both for political and economic reasons, I think China will be making efforts to expand its role in the region. On the trade front, In the absence of TPP, China's moves to further regional economic groupings like the so-called RCEP trade deal will probably be advantaged by the lack of a competing deal and probably get a bit of momentum as a result of the TPP ending. And then 
politically, we will no doubt see efforts to reach out to a number of countries, particularly those that may be less certain about the relationship with the U.S. I was in Australia last week. President Trump's phone call with the Australian PM was on the front page of every newspaper. And part of almost every article was the note that China would certainly be looking to take advantage of that. That's right. You travel a lot in Asia and you speak with investors, policymakers really across the whole region. What is the difference about how some of these issues we've been discussing are viewed there from that region versus from here in New York or in London? Well, the importance of a free and open trade environment to the prospects for these economies is very high. I think that's really taken for granted by a lot of leaders throughout the region. And now that it's perhaps in question how open access to U.S. and even other markets will be in the coming years, it's of grave concern to a lot of leaders out there. It's the first question we're asked by clients and policymakers in the region. What is the new administration going to do? Are we going to see tariffs? So that's of great importance. And then linked to that, really, in general, the stance of the U.S. on so many issues is of great importance to both the economics and the policy environment in Asia. So those things that may seem relatively small from a U.S. perspective have an outsized impact in Asia. And that extends broadly to the security role that the U.S. has played in Asia historically since World War II the relatively rules-based trading and economic environment that we've seen, and also to issues like U.S. economic and Fed policy, the impact that that has on capital flows to the region. Most countries have significant export exposure to the U.S. Most trade is invoiced in dollars. So really what may seem like small nuances in U.S. policy have very significant effects on both investors and policymakers in Asia. So a lot of questions at the moment, but we'll stay tuned. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on February 6th, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.